0: Retail Revolution is a special limited podcast created specifically for retailing and service design, a unique course that is part of the fashion management graduate program at Parsons School of Design in New York City. Each episode features in-depth conversations with guest experts in omnichannel retailing with myriad perspectives, technology, consumer engagement, data analytics, merchandising, and more. We pay special attention to the short and long-term challenges and implications of COVID-19, and potential opportunities to rethink retail's future. Retail Revolution is produced by Joshua Williams and hosted by Christopher Lacey. Both are assistant professors in the School of Fashion at Parsons.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Retail Revolution podcast, where we discuss all things pertaining to retailing and service design. I'm your host, Christopher Lacey, and today I have with me not just an amazing designer and creative director, but a good friend, He was the senior menswear designer for Valentino, creative director of multi-award winning international menswear brand Aggie & Sam. He has worked for Alexander McQueen, JW Anderson, and Karl Lagerfeld. His awards include the International Woolmark Prize regional winner for 2016, LVMH Prize finalists in 2015, and that's just to name a couple. His lecturing experience includes Condé Nast College of Fashion and Design, Central St. Martin and London College of Fashion, and lecturing on design, business, ethics, anthropology, and philosophy. It is my pleasure to welcome creative director of Rainmint, Sam Cotton. What is up, Sam?
2: Hello. How are you? Good.
1: Thank you so much for coming on today.
2: See, that introduction wasn't as long as you were worried it would be.
1: <laughs> I think because I like went through it so fast. <laughs> and wait, wait, in fairness to, to all the listeners, he's done so much more. It's extremely impressive what, what he has done in his career. And we are about to talk about that right now. So Sam, tell us about you and your career and that whole journey.
2: My initial background and interest at school was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I was torn between science, philosophy, and art. I, I literally didn't know which way to go. I did a bit of, um, I did a sort of research semester um, at a laboratory and found it. I don't know. It was almost just too a little bit limiting because you would end up basically having to focus on one specific type of genome. If you were looking down there, I was studying. Um, funnily enough, I was studying um, uh, pandemics. So um, I ended up deciding that if it was going to be my time to study, then I could try and look at something a little bit more broader, give me the chance to explore art. So ultimately I settled with fine art. And I suppose through that process my, my, my interest was always always still informed by science and philosophy. And in, there, in that time I was I was spending a lot of time looking through materials, through innovation, looking at how clothing and materials affected people when they wore them the functions behind clothing and I I suppose I moved to London hoping I didn't even know what I wanted to be actually to be honest I I just knew that I I just knew that I couldn't do um, fine art and get paid so I moved to London I applied for like a textiles internship I don't know how many years ago now that was too many years ago Um, uh, Alexander McQueen Um, I worked there for about six months. And then I suppose my interest in, in, in clothing then started intertwining with my like anthropological interest. And one thing led to another, I started working for these different brands. Then I started my own brand, ran that for seven years with um, my old business partner, Aggie. That closed because the wholesale is an absolute nightmare and having small business with, with zero, zero investment. We did it all ourselves was just wow. ultimately was ultimately too hard so we um I then left well I actually started looking back into what I wanted to do properly like whether it was whether fashion was the right direction and it took me a while to work out actually that it was my approach to fashion that I think at the time wasn't fulfilling me so I relooked at that I started working with the University of Central London, a group called the Institute of Making, doing um, material science development, 4D stimulus, nanomaterial, and was implementing those as a consultant through LVMH, Richmond Group, um, COS, Nike, people like that. Um, and then I, what did I do then? Oh yeah, and then I, I, I basically was still doing consultancy as a designer. Um then was offered this gig in, in Rome, moved to Rome, worked at Valentino, um, and yeah, that, that kind of brings us to now.
1: I love the way you, you talk about how you navigate your career. It's funny because you're like, yeah, that's just kind of what you do, right? Like, that's that's how it goes. I want to go back just a bit about, you know, you had mentioned being uh, a, a new designer and having this new company uh, with Aggie uh, and Sam, and that Your collections with Aggie and Sam were stunning and, and not to go all the way back into, into the past because people don't really love to talk about the past because I want us to talk about who you are now. But there is something from the business aspect where you talked about, you know, wholesale and and that being really challenging. So with creatives going into business... What are the fundamentals you feel creatives should really understand about the industry from a business perspective?
2: I suppose I have kind of like two answers. One is from the point of um, probably like playing the game and the other is like sort of working in, in the kind of, sorry, playing the game and working in the current model. And I suppose the other is like understanding the current model and mm-hmm. trying to do the right thing just to quickly sort of narrate what, what you mentioned then about my old brand. When we started, we were two kids, like we were like 22 when we started our brand, we'd like come out of uni, no jobs and the start of a, a recession um I think I'd, I'd got offered a job. there was one job that I was I was looking for before, and I said, if I don't get this, I will start this business and it was it was pants and sock designer for Paul Smith. so basically after that didn't happen I was like, okay, let's start." when we started we had no business background aggie trained in fashion i'd been a fine artist we'd had experience working in the industry but we're very much attached to all that world and we came in with this sort of this naive view i suppose that we didn't want we wanted to make clothes that were affordable we wanted to make clothes that could be bought by people we didn't want it to be elitist we wanted to have fun we had this vision of what we wanted the world to be like based on these sort of these sort of at times like quite bad experiences and fashion and the seriousness of it mm-hmm. so what we did was we had this idea of what we wanted to do but then when you try and implement that idea you quickly realize it's very hard and very idealistic to try and do these things with the infrastructure that was currently set within the not within our country, purely our country, but purely like this neoliberal capitalist world. Like the infrastructure was destroyed in this country for manufacture. The cost of producing garments was three times the, the price we thought it would be, three times the price that we even wanted to sell it at. And then you would then go to wholesale. And then when you wholesale, it was like 2.8, three times markup for your department stores. And basically we just found like the, that, the clothing that we were making was just just unbelievably expensive. and you can't you can't feasibly build a business that way in this time and day so we went for years and years and years taking all this advice from people being like look you have to do this you have to get this price point if you don't do that you're going to lose money but we made a decision halfway through the business to actually sort of speculate and gamble a little bit we wanted to be a um, contemporary level brand so we realized that like if we went to Paris and sold if we could sell a shirt for half the price that we were looking at, we'd actually end up selling more. And the more you sell, the more units you sell. And then the more units you sell, the, your price cost your cost price goes down. So that we came from it from a good point of view, but then ultimately politics and the economy got in the way. But then we tried to be a bit smart with the way people were buying and force a new way to have a bit more of a business savvy, I suppose.
1: That's really interesting because I think that you had what many designers when they're, when you first approach a business or you have, and I, I, not just designers, I think artists in general or anyone who's creating, you're creating because you're like, this is what's missing. And I, I wanna stay true and genuine to to this, what I'm doing. And then as you start navigating the space, you're like, oh no, how do I just stay genuine to what I'm doing? But still, as you said it, play, play the game and play the game in, in the right way. But but even though Aggie and Sam ended, you still navigated in your next phases, and I want to talk. I want to ask you about that because that's something that's really important, I think, to to your story, which is you had your creative director, you're designing for your own, own brand, and then you go into an organization.
2: Yeah, this is where but, it completely changes. This is why it's like. it's it's kind of like what I was touching up before it's like when you run your own business you have to create something and you have to I think the the reason why we were successful is because we had a really strong point of view and we had a really strong brand identity and the business ultimately fell apart because of lack of investment like we couldn't cover the bigger the business got we couldn't cover our shortfalls we couldn't manufacture we when you would take in like half a million pounds of orders a year you have to find quarter of a million pounds just to to produce it in the first place because the factories aren't going to release stuff without getting paid. And when big stores don't do that, you need to be more creative with it. But I think there's a kid, like, this is where you have these, these two sort of these approaches that you can have. I think, I think basically a lot of new brands and young artists have these sort of delusions of grandeur almost going against the current world model. And I think um, often creatives want to develop a sort of new model of business without ever really understanding like the history and formation and why, of why are we living in a society as such as we do. And like, honestly, for me, like to come out of my business, I I, I then started to understand these processes of like, for example, like reading and understanding Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations or understanding the liberalism's charges through John Maynard Keynes or ultimately now like Frederick Hayek's neoliberal economics. It's like there is a reason why we're where we are. And ultimately, I think you wouldn't try and develop a better understanding of the universe without, like if, you, if you're if you a physicist, like understanding general relativity. And I believe this is the same for predict, sort of perfecting any existing system. You have to understand that system before you can break it down. I mean, ultimately, we're living in a time of capitalism, and there's no real quick way out of that. Both the state and the world economy and, and business are, are driven by that. And that's when I think you can look at it in this positive way, but then also you have to also like, I don't know if you're working for a large corporation, they're very much dependent on making money. And and currently to make money, you kind of have to follow the zeitgeist of business, whether you believe it's the right thing or not. And I do think there are a lot of caveats in business that are, I don't know, very creative working for a big, big brand. You need to understand the consumer. You need to know how to connect to that consumer. You need to understand what's happening from a sales perspective and you need to learn how to evolve that understanding to maintain sales stay current and be innovative, all those things. But I think it's increasingly difficult for, for designers working in this way as it's a real balancing act. And I think there's a lot of confusion in the industry about who has like the sort of correct balanced equation for this.
1: I, I, I think, well, I agree with you on that because I, you know, and you and I talked about this where it's this absolutely understanding the consumer, understanding sales. But do we get to a point where everything ends up looking the same and everyone is trying to be someone else's brand, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. And it's often, I honestly believe like a, a new original philosophy creates success. Like as long as that philosophy can connect to the society it's born into, like if you if you surround that philosophy with like-minded individuals in your team, you can build that dream together. Like I suppose brands like Vetements, Gucci, Balenciaga, they, they all did that very, very well. And what I don't believe is the right answer for for big brands is to look at what these brands are doing and say, hey, this is like I don't know, this is like working so well for them, let's do it ourselves because this is this is when it becomes very confusing and I think it, it's ultimately the the toxic sort of state this industry is in now. Personally, my dream would be to go to a, a brand where there's literally like no fashion on any of the mood boards because I think then truly you get a real, original, authentic approach to uh, uh, creating a message that's not been seen before.
1: I like that you said that. Then that means chances are your inspiration isn't really coming from the fashion industry as for what, you, what, what you're what you seeing. Where yeah. are you drawing your inspiration from when you decide that you want to create?
2: Um, it depends. I, I, I have two facets to my my interests. One is craft and materials and organic processes. Like I love that, I love the history of it. I also love modernity and innovation and science and technology. I feel like if it's for me, like my own brand is something that I'm trying to do to encourage international collaborative craft because I think it's been missing for a long time. There's, these, there's, there's a lot of things I've been reading about the importance of craft, especially in like the works of Marx, like when Marx talks about like, um, I mean, there's this thing called neaked metaphysics where he talks about how humans themselves are tool-bearing creatures, that they naturally evolve to be that way. And without that, humans lose purpose. And I I too agree with that, but I also see that inspiration and innovation are looking forwards. And I think to look forward, you have to leave the past behind. You have to nod at it and, and respect it. And there are times where you can nostalgically dream about it, but ultimately you have to move forward. So my inspiration comes from either sides of those worlds, basically. And that's sometimes, I think, what causes quite interesting jars when you think about how you can make something as organic, but with something as industrial. Like, that's that's what excites me, basically.
1: You do some amazing work and thought when it comes to textile production um, and fabrications and materiality. And I don't want you to tell your secrets because, you know, you and I've talked about it and every time we talk about something about that you're doing with material, my eyes get really big and I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) that's insane. But I would like for you to talk about that a bit because I, I think this is where we need to go. And I think it's going to be important that we get there quickly especially as we come out of this pandemic. So if you don't mind talking about some of the materialities that you're playing with and, and your 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 approach to this.
2: Yeah, I mean my my experience in materials is has been something that has been a kind of ongoing research from from college really. I'm really interested in all facets of material, whether it be through architecture, through interiors, through autonomy, through any like anything like fashion obviously is one of those things and i think within those things and materials it's what you actually apply with those materials what you you take those materials and you do with them Uh, also how you get to that material like what the process is and i think a part of that is to do and why fashion's lent itself so much to me is that i really really love this idea of whatever you whatever whatever society you're living in or whatever time you're living in the clothes have to reflect that they have to make your life easier and you can see that through the beginnings of, I mean, even if you go back as far as hunter-gatherer, like hunter-gatherer survived through an ice age because they were the first, I'm guessing that it would be Homo sapiens, Homo genus, they would be the first group of people that worked out how to literally stitch together or peel together furs and leathers, which meant they could hunt, which meant they could be shorter from the cold. It literally kept uh, Homo genus alive and mm-hmm. allowed us to be what it is. Then you look into things like, I mean, we skip a lot further forward, but the wars, military, the industrial revolution, modern culture, everything. When you when you look at it from that perspective and pair it towards clothing or materials, you see that it's twinned. And the ones that succeed are the ones that are able to hit that at the right level. And I think now we're at a point where, like, obviously sportswear is leading the, the sort of economy, they're leading the innovative sides of materials they're pushing it into well because they're more it's more relevant to what we're doing now but i personally think that the relevance in this way doesn't always have to come through something physical it could come through a philosophical thought it could th- come through an improvement of say mental wellness or um, an improvement of the metabolic rift or the improvement of various things like this and i think that's what's always interested me about materials and that's why when i approach materials i try and do it in a way that ask the question.
1: So I I actually want to go in another direction with with what you brought up about philosophy. We have talked philosophy quite a bit, uh, our approaches to it, what we think. And you sent me this book that I can't wait to read. It is called Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. It's written by Brian Green, we talk about sustainability and and ethical processes in the fashion industry. I want you to talk about your thoughts when it comes to ethics and sustainability, because we, we always talk about it. We always talk about it, but when you come from it, from a philosophy approach, it it becomes more important right it it becomes like and it's also easier for us to to make these changes when we look at it from a philosophy perspective and i'd love for you to talk about that because you have some amazing views that i'd love for the listeners to hear
2: it kind of touches a little bit on what, what i was about to speak about then like i said like there's this there's this whole process of evolution through materials and through clothing and sportswear and and ultimately production management like all of these things for example Brian Green Brian green's that's, that's more um, he's a physicist works a string theory his view um, the book's actually amazing in this, in this process but he talks about this idea of how everything is, is is subatomic like even to the formations of the the universe how entropy works to the planetary formation to who we are as individuals to how we molecularly grow and combine and work with each other it's it's an amazing book and I would definitely recommend it but the idea of ethics I think for me is I believe that ethics and sustainability and innovation are all a consideration when it comes to innovation within materials now and in in fashion and in in retail I suppose like I said we should look deeper into our our new culture of well-being and awareness that everyone is linking into now especially myself I mean I was very inspired by you a few years ago about your work with meditation and mental wellness. And for me, I, I've tried to bring that on board because I think it's got a very important place in society now. Basically, I, I think there's a lot of questions that need to be asked. Like, what, like for example, luxury. The definition of luxury needs to change. Like, it, it, I mean, it's already changed from its archaic roots in the past being defined with scarcity and rarity and through craft and material. It's like, what, what is... The new luxury of material. What is the new craft? Especially with these considerations of mental wellness and conscientiousness involved. But I don't know. I think it's, it's 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 quite hard. It's like there is like a like a too elitist way of kind of trying to like sort of put this message out to people and be like. I mean, this is the problem with what why neoliberalism kind of exploded in America and in the UK. I think when you start to talk about ethics and sustainability and the right way to do something, the morally fair way to do something, it can sometimes ostracize people. And I think it's it's just quite a difficult approach, I think, if you know what I mean.
1: Like, I, I completely know what you mean, and I, I've said this, I probably say this every time the conversation of sustainability comes up, which is when, when you look at fast fashion and what it does for the consumer, mm. and you say, okay, well, we need sustainable, everyone needs to be more sustainable. If you are a mom who, or a, a father, and you've got three kids, or a family that's income—I mean, in New York State, the the average household income, you know, three years ago was twenty-seven thousand. The average household income for New York State. You've been to New York, and you live in yeah. London, and so that's <laughs> right. Just,
2: it? And it feels like this big liberal, uh, just sort of like sort of speaking from the top of our ivory towers, it's like, it, it, it's not realistic. And I think for it to be realistic, there needs to be a complete change to the system. Like mm-hmm. there, in these, these approaches, there needs to be sanctions in place to protect the planet, of course. There needs to be sanctions in place to protect mental health. I've got a big, a big thing against social media, which we'll come onto in a bit, but I think there needs to be more protection on that. There needs to be fair funding for social and liberal necessities, like, like public healthcare novel viruses like pandemic funding. There needs to be just public welfare. we, we can't be like, but at the same time, we can't be under like in, no illusion that like trade and capitalism isn't needed because it, of course it's needed to fund these things. It's just about now finding the right forms and ethical approaches for these things. So if we are gonna trade and if we are gonna produce capital, like how do we do that? That's ethical. How do we do that? That allows us to build this liberal world. And how do we do it in ways that's that can educate people through sanctions or through teaching them what I think is ethically or morally right without seeming patronizing or without making it completely unrealistic? Like we all want to drink, like we want to go to Whole Foods and eat all like uh, three dollar bananas and like, <laughs> it's, but it's not realistic and. Right. It, it, we need to find a way of making it more realistic. There's, there's an amazing, I mean, we shot ourselves in the foot with with like neoliberal offshoring. Well, both feet, legs, arms, body. We shot entire <laughs> society apart. But do we really plan on continuing with this process? Like we've reached a levy of manufacturing. Like there's a really good vice short with, um, I think, economist, Jeremy Rifkin, I think he's an American economist. It's called mm-hmm. The Third Industrial Revolution and it, it explains all of this. It's really worth a watch. But, ultimately we have to have a monumental change which will require a profound political and ideological shift i think
1: and when people say they want to go back to to normal i'm like well normal really wasn't that great that we were doing before the way we were doing things my other fear is is when we talk about manufacturing especially when we come out on the other side of this pandemic many organizations have understood that they need to diversify their manufacturing and where it's done because a lot of it was done in China. Some people were able to get products. Some people are not. If it was in Italy that you were being manufactured that shut things down. And so there is going to be, and there already has been a focus on manufacturing in um, Vietnam, but also when we look at the 38 fastest growing economies, they're actually coming, you know, out of Africa, right right now. Yeah. Actually, I should take that back. It's it was really more like thirty eight percent of the fastest growing economies are coming out of Africa, and that's because of manufacturing. And my fear is, is to your point, when we thought, when we think about ethics, what does this look like now? We we've made the mistake over and over again, all the way from when we talk about manufacturing. If we really go all the way back to slaves picking cotton, to now, we've exploited people we, we've done things in unethical ways how do we do this now and how do we make sure that we do this in the right way so that everyone benefits on every single part of the supply chain and and we we are not having that conversation in the right way
2: no, um, i think the problem is now is that obviously it's it's a new world order that is is approaching this this sort of this old-fashioned process that of offshoring that we invented like like we spoke about this before but obviously china have a massive hold at the moment in africa for precious precious um, diamonds for various things like this that one diamond that's used in the iphone that's only found in a specific part of africa and it's there's massive like communities now that are being built out there and generating so much money and we've just seen it all before and like Mm -hmm. How, how do you, I don't even know how you can change that from without being inside of that. The only thing I could suggest that we do is we just basically have to start from the root up. We need to, I don't know how it's been with you, with you in, um, in America, but I don't know if you've seen the news, but like we have had like a massive, massive shortage of um, PPE and scrubs in, in the UK. ultimately like we've not had enough for the NHS to use. There's a massive push at the moment where we've had breakaway like cottage production industries that have come together to reduce PPE and scrubs in their living rooms through crowdfunding. It's been enormous. It's amazing. But this, to me, is a kind of, I don't know, it's like a really idealistic way of what I would like to do in terms of reappropriating manufacture internally so whether we whether you can build out better structures and formations within a country to facilitate its country without I don't know isolating yourself or going back to nationalism but we wouldn't be in this position if if the UK hadn't have decided to produce all of their medical equipment in China because we used to have this massive industry in the UK of workwear, wear. we had tailoring, we had all of this stuff. And as soon as 70s, Thatcher, Nixon, neoliberalism kicked in, the dream was to offshore everything and produce it that way. Now we went over obviously to China, we did this with China, China grew, now China doing this to Africa. I don't know whether we can do anything to change that. But what we can do is work out what is a good society, what has worked in the past, and rebuild our nations to do this. I think trade needs to be relooked really looked at as well i think I, I, I was reading this thing actually sorry to um go on to a different tangent but um <laughs> i was i was reading this this piece the other day well it's, it's this work by this japanese philosopher philosopher called um, koji karatani Um he writes this piece called the structure of world history and basically i found this really interesting because this is almost like how i would see the route forward into trade and into restructuring worlds and how they work together because basically what he does is he looks at the previous works of like Marx's base and superstructure models where he talks about l- like society being like a three-story building so you have economy at the bottom politics then culture at the top that's what Marx always said like everything needs to run through the, econ- through, um, the economy at the bottom like production manufacturing, and each one builds up and builds up and builds up he obviously was just hated this 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 proletariat world and Karatani then introduces these three modes, which are like kind of elevator shafts in the same building and each shaft like has a mode. So you have mode A, which was a reciprocity of the gift. So a non-market exchange of goods or favors. So like you'd ask for something, you'd get something back. You give something, you get something back. This has always existed. Then you have mode B, which is brute force. So invasion, war, torture, typical societal changes. Uh, mode C, which is commodity as an exchange and so market trading. So basically each of these modes interact with the different floors and they all gain power based on their impacts. And um, this has gone along through history and built various different societies. Through this, what they're saying is it's um, it's impossible to sort of escape these layers and modes. But there are ways of re-evaluating the sort of diachronic states of each and mode. So basically what you would have, which is what's similarly happening in the UK is you have things such as trade occurring through free information or through scarcity of goods or changing technical organized forms of work or generative work. And these sort of approaches, even though they're happening at kind of like quite a binary level, it's making people question what it is to trade commodity. Does commodity have to be like throwaway products? Does it have to be like capitalist monetary? Can it not be information? Can it not be giving something that is rare or useful? Like, and I think this is what I'm starting to see occur already, which I think is quite amazing considering he, he, he kind of predicted this. There was this bit at the end where they talk about where the whole process of capital, nation, state, um, which is what Karatani uh, talks about, which is um, Marx, Marx's view of you have the capital, you have the nation, of the state. What he's done is he's linked some Emmanuel Kant's work in, which is changing the view of state to an understanding. So giving the, the state an understanding of what is okay to do, having a mm-hmm. sensibility towards capital. So what is capital? Why is it this way? And giving uh, the nation imagination to be able to build and develop what it needs to be. So for me, I just I, I saw this stuff come across, and I was like, well, what what could it mean for people um, in retailing in a new place, developing and designing stuff like you have free information as I said like the, the last few few weeks I suppose I've been well since I've been in lockdown I've been doing all those MoMA courses I don't know if you've seen them the free yes bonus. yeah <laughs> the art <laughs> courses yeah 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 amazing I've just been doing them like three of those a week and it's been amazing Um, we've been having like group talks um on on um on zoom with like my friends who are all in the industry, some of them were in factories that they've built themselves by like literally in their back gardens with all this old machinery. We've been having these ideas of like talking about what is rare and what's missing, like the scarcity of products. And we've been talking about how to literally change the way people like restructure their business models to kind of look into what matters first, like the environment, mental, mental wellness, purpose of innovation, like those sort of things. It's been amazing, like these talks. And I feel like, this is something that really needs to be looked at within society now about how we can change what has been going on because it's not working. It's absolutely not working.
1: It really isn't. And I think this is the that, that point where there's even more importance now for the education area and industry should begin to work together, right, uh, right. in an effort, you know, to change what the the future of retail looks like. How do you think you know education and industry can start to work together in the future to to change this up?
2: Collaboration, hundred percent.
1: More more collaboration, yeah. We have to like on the academia side have to be willing and ready to educate organizations on better processes and show them not not just educate them on it but go you know have the ability to kind of lead them and show them through it. Because when you're standing on the outside and you're like, change, you know, change the process and, and they're going, but, but this process has existed for our organization for 60 years and it impacts, you know, millions of employees. Someone has to kind of be able to go, this is the way you could go about doing it. And and it not necessarily be a consulting firm that's going to charge them hundreds and thousands of dollars to get this done. Right to your point, it has to be a much better collaboration between education and industry and how we help give information about the process, but how to go about it.
2: It kind of goes on to this idea of business at the start as well. But I I think when I say collaboration, there's a broader sense to it as well, where like, I don't just mean collaboration between institutions and their, their like topical course industries, but also between industries that have nothing to do with the course of the students around like I think students and brands and businesses need a wider understanding of society at the moment. Um, society works better. I think when there's a, obviously, as we talked about that, this is a collaboration and exchange of ideas. Like I, I was listening to um, a podcast the other day um, called Dark Horse. Um, it's got two uh, biologists on it. I think Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying. I think they're married, but they were, they were discussing how best to approach and understand like COVID-19 and, and Brett listed like five different specialists who need to come together to work on this, who mm. will have never ever worked with one another. And none of those people would have ever even dreamt of it because they've never needed to before. So they just don't have the required contacts. When I was thinking about this, I was, I believe that this is the problem with what I've noticed with institutions and industries. There doesn't seem to be much vision outside of the four walls of their professions. I've always personally thought that, um, institutionally that the same unilateral, like course project topic should be set for an entire school year of courses, not like alternate topics between separate courses because basically then you can, institutions can offer like weekly symposiums that allow like collaboration between like courses to working together on larger scale projects. And that means you can get people who like, some people who work in business, some people who work in fashion, some people who are working in advertising and get them to come together and talk and communicate And you could then mark that on an individual level and on a collective level. And surely this is how industries are like supposed to work. Like, are you supposed to as if it's, as it's like kind of often failing in industries as well. But I don't know. I I just feel like it would enable students to become seasoned a lot quicker, like working Mm -hmm. and possibly could bring back like more collaboration and teamwork in businesses. Like probably even when they walk into them at a young age, because there isn't, I don't think that's happening as much as as it should really.
1: I agree with you. I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. I'm going to ask you one last question and then I'm giving you back your day. How would you complete this sentence? The future of fashion retail
2: is. This is kind of something that links onto kind of what I've been trying to talk about, but I think it's the future of fashion retail is a collective, connective material exchange. I think there are a lot of different ways now that society is trying to better themselves through whether it's the work they do the things they care about and i think retail needs to also consider that and i think it needs to have a group of people working together and they need to be connected and i think whatever that material exchange is i think it could be pretty important for the world because retail at the moment is what is formulating our entire capitalist approach. So
1: there we go. Sam Cotton on the future of fashion. There we go. So Sam, how do our listeners hear more about what's going on with you? How do they follow you? Your new brand? You're you're not a social media guy.
2: New. No. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do have a social media for the brand, but it's it's run by yeah. Um, it's about, well, you, you can follow me on Instagram.com forward slash Raymont Studios. So it's R-A-I-M-E-N-T Studios, all one word. My work is all over the place. I can be working somewhere and then working somewhere else. I'm also currently, as, as I've been speaking to you about, involved in some, some more fine art projects, working with material scientists and also generative algorithmic physicists and stuff. So stay yeah, tuned.
1: Hopefully you and I will be working on a project together soon.
2: Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. You've got to get me to New York. Can someone pay for my visa and get me to move to New York? <laughs>
1: Done. Actually, we should just start with doing kind of an apartment swap thing or, or house swap. But I only want London in the good time of of, of the year. So,
2: You get about four weeks of sunshine. <laughs>
1: The way New York is going, it's about the same. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. This was such a great conversation. You know, you and I can always talk philosophy and evolution and consumer behavior and, and the world. And it's always nice to have people around you that you can do that with. So thank you so much.
2: we no worries. always for- that wasn't too waffly and hopefully you got some information out of it.
1: No, we did. It was amazing. All right, you take care, buddy.
2: All right, take care. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Retail Revolution. A very special thank you to everyone who has helped make this podcast possible. Our guests, our students and fellow faculty at Parsons School of Design, especially in such an extraordinary and unprecedented time. Our theme music was composed by Spencer Powell. Be well and stay tuned for our next episode.